dry lightning poses, poses a much larger risk. Tonight, a wildfire in the interior and a forecast that's igniting concern. Plus... The parade is all within your own heart to begin with. Lots of pride, just no parade for the first time in 42 years. And... No one knew just what had happened. A BC Ferry tragedy still fresh in the mind of a passenger 50 years later. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening. Thanks for joining us. We begin with breaking news. Global News has learned that at least two firefighters with Vancouver Fire and Rescue Services have tested positive for COVID-19. The city of Vancouver says the two firefighters contracted the virus while on holiday. One of the firefighters has had worked a shift prior to showing symptoms. And the crews who worked with them are now in self-isolation and other staff have been called in to cover. Contact tracing is underway to determine who else may have been exposed. The city says there is no risk to the public. More COVID-19 cases have been reported on flights in and out of YVR in recent days. The CDC says the potential in flight exposures are both on Air Canada flights. If you traveled on Air Canada Flight 204 from YVR to Calgary on July 27th or Air Canada Flight 343 from Ottawa to Vancouver on July 29th, you may have been exposed. You're asked to self-monitor for symptoms for two weeks and isolate and be tested if they present. More information is on the CDC. Webpage. The number of wildfires across BC continues to grow this weekend as hot, dry weather and lightning storms increase the fire danger rating. There are at least 39 active fires burning in the province right now. And as Kristen Robinson reports, once in the forecast isn't helping. A cloud of smoke visible from Okanagan Lake as crews battle a new wildfire in the hills above West Kelowna. With much of the interior and southern interior under heat warnings and severe thunderstorm watches in effect from the Caribou to the Peace River, the Prince George Fire Centre is preparing for more potential lightning-caused fires. There's definitely a risk associated with the lightning. Definitely dry lightning poses, poses a much larger risk. A band of dry thunderstorms has sparked multiple new fires in the Kamloops and Southeast Fire Centres. Half of the province's 73 fires since Friday, now out. Most started in the last 48 hours, believed to have been caused by lightning. The Solco Creek wildfire northeast of Oliver, the largest of two currently burning out of control on more than three hectares. Near Nanaimo, crews continue to fight the Green Mountain fire. Compared to other seasons, we are still significantly below average. This time last year, we had 588 fires. Thanks to our rainy June, many potential fuel sources are still holding on to moisture. And 2020 has seen about 320 wildfires so far. But officials say the risk hasn't been doused. We can't uh, get complacent just because of kind of what we've had up until this point. Northeast of West Kelowna, BC wildfire crews and local firefighters are working to contain the small but growing Rose Valley Dam wildfire, which is burning uphill and away from homes. Kristen Robinson, Global News.
A Lytton man is facing serious charges after allegedly fleeing the scene of a hit-and-run crash that sparked a wildfire. RCMP say it happened last night when the driver of a pickup truck crashed into a hydro pole on North Spencer Road at Lytton Ferry Road, west of the Fraser River. The crash knocked the pole over and sparked a small wildfire. Local farmers were able to prevent it from getting out of control. Police say they tracked down the driver, a man in his 40s, who failed a breathalyzer test. Mounties that he could be liable to cover the costs of the fire response. A swimmer is presumed to have drowned in Okanagan Lake this weekend. West Kelowna RCMP responded to reports a 33-year-old Alberta man had failed to surface while cliff jumping near Rattlesnake Island just after 2.30 yesterday afternoon. Efforts to locate him Saturday were unsuccessful. The RCMP's underwater recovery team has been brought in. For the safety of the divers, police asked boaters to stay away from the area. There's been an arrest in connection with a fatal stabbing in Kamloops Saturday. RCMP were called to a home on Clark Street in the city's west end at around 10.30 yesterday morning and found a 39-year-old man suffering from stab wounds. He was taken to hospital where he died. About three and a half hours later, police arrested a 37-year-old suspect. RCMP say the suspect and the victim knew each other but are saying little else about the crime. Vancouver police are investigating a road rage incident, one where both parties have their own dash cam footage. As Grace Key reports, that video evidence shows the type of bad behavior we see all too often on B.C. roads. You're cutting me off. you. An alleged road rage incident in Vancouver is captured on dash cam. It started along East 22nd near Slocan Friday afternoon. Maggie Nye says a woman in an SUV cut her off. A few blocks away, they came to a stop, and that's when things got heated. I saw her shouting like, what the f*** is your problem? Like, what do you want, f***? And she got out of her car, just stormed over it. And then she started banging on my windows, banging on my mirror. Nye claims the woman used a racial slur, but it's not clear in the video. You can hear a banging noise and a woman yelling profanities. The SUV driver denies using a racial slur or ever touching Nye's car. She did provide her own dash cam video saying Nye was chasing her for several blocks and at one point even ran a red light. Nye called police and says she wasn't happy with the response. The officer just on multiple points kept asking me like, were you speeding? Like, you know, if you were speeding, she would have misjudged your speed. That's why she came out. Vancouver police released a statement reading, two drivers did get into a confrontation and had a verbal dispute. There was no physical assault and VPD officers did attend speaking with both drivers. This incident is now under investigation and there has been no arrests in this incident. Nye has made an ICBC claim and she made a complaint against the officers. The SUV driver says she regrets getting out of her car and the incident has taught her the importance of getting a dash cam. Grace Key, Global News. A 37-year-old woman was arrested at Westwood Lake in Nanaimo yesterday after a bizarre chain of events that began with a road rage incident on the Nanaimo Parkway. At around 5 o'clock, RCMP say a senior driving with her husband was punched by the female suspect who then tried to run over a pedestrian on, in, on Jingle Pot 
on the Jingle Pot Pub. The suspect allegedly climbed onto the lifeguard tower at Westwood Beach and sprayed some kind of liquid on a police officer. The woman, who is believed to have been on drugs or having a medical crisis, was arrested and later released with a November court date. Police in Maple Ridge are investigating a shooting last night. Officers were called to Selkirk and 223rd after reports of shots fired. Shortly afterwards, a white car arrives at Ridge Meadows Hospital. Its passenger window had been shot out, but police won't confirm if it's connected. The RCMP would only say it was an isolated attack and there is no threat to public safety. Golden Ears Park was closed for several hours this morning as first responders dealt with a police incident. Those already camping on site were temporarily unable to leave, and those trying to get in, even with a day pass, were not allowed to enter. It reopened shortly before noon. Well, from the South Okanagan to the north, a series of fatal crashes have led to calls for more barriers on valley highways. Now, the province is answering those calls with two projects that will divide busy sections of Highway 97A and Highway 97. But as Megan Turcato reports, that still leaves one controversial section without the safety upgrade. As a steady stream of vehicles flows in both directions on Highway 97A, south of Armstrong, there's a patch of pavement and two yellow lines to keep them apart. But that will soon change. The province recently announced later this year median barriers will be installed on a nearly six-kilometre section of the highway between Smith Road in Armstrong and Pleasant Valley Road. It's the kind of announcement Jessica Tabe had been hoping for. The North Okanagan woman started a petition calling for the road to be divided after her relative and a Calgary woman were killed in separate crashes on the highway last year. I just want to say thanks to everybody who signed the petition, who supported it and who wanted to get it in and change this to save people's lives. More highway barriers are also coming to Highway 97 in the South Okanagan. There, both median and roadside barriers will be installed between Penticton and Summerland, from West Bench Hill Road to Sun Oka Beach Provincial Park. The announcement comes after a fatal collision north of Summerland inspired a separate petition seeking barriers on Highway 97 to help protect drivers in icy winter conditions. Um, I think it was 1,300 pages of names. I mean, that's that's pretty remarkable. Um, I, I think that shows that it strikes a nerve with a lot of people. So I definitely think, uh, I think the provincial government had no choice but to listen to their constituents. But so far only partially. The main focus of that South Okanagan petition was another stretch of Highway 97 between Summerland and Peachland, which was not mentioned in this week's announcement. I really feel that that stretch of road north of Summerland is dangerous, so I kind of hope that that would be done first, but I also have to trust that the Ministry of Transportation and Infrastructure the Transportation Ministry did not respond to a request for comment Sunday about whether more median barriers are planned for the Peachland to Summerland area. Megan Turcato, Global News. Migrant workers and their supporters dressed up in costume to highlight a very serious problem. The farm workers and members of Dignidad Migrante Society dressed up as the produce they harvest as they rode bikes through the streets of Vancouver. 
the event highlighting their demands to the federal and provincial governments. The stunt is meant to raise awareness for better working and living conditions, including being paid minimum wage. They say due to the pandemic, farms are overcrowded with four to six people living in a room. And this is very important for us because uh, uh, we feel that we are part of the whole society and we are part of the Canadian society as a farm workers because uh, we provide food for everyone's tables. It's a semi-feudal relationship they have. They are tied to an employer. No other workers in, in, in Canada are tied to their employer. You and I and other workers have the right to, to, to quit if we want to and leave and go and work for somebody else. These workers are not able to do that. And later this afternoon, a small group marched from the Vancouver Art Gallery to English Bay in the clean, sober, proud recovery walk. The event honors those lost to the overdose crisis. In May alone, 170 people died of overdoses in B.C. The group says a provincial recovery plan for addiction is desperately needed. It's time B.C. makes recovery a priority, and it's time B.C. residents have access to immediate treatment on demand, and that's just not the case in B.C., and 44 people are going to die this week alone. Well, no water guns, no crowds, and no candy thrown from floats. For the first time in 42 years, there was no parade down the streets of Vancouver's West End today. But on this Pride weekend, as Paul Johnson discovered, that doesn't mean there's no pride. Pride Day at Davian Butte, and the rainbow colors are out, though the floats are not. The parade is all within your own heart to begin with. In recent years, the Pride Parade has evolved into something more like a days-long cultural festival, with regular marchers now including top politicians like the Prime Minister. Remember when his hair was this short? What a difference a year makes. So there still was an event this year, but online. Performers were still channeling Gloria Gaynor, but just not on Davie Street. Jim Diva Plaza Sunday was awash with the much more subdued sounds of a jazz guitar duo. Doing what I can to volunteer and watching it on TV as often as I can. If the cancellation of a proper parade is being received more with stoicism than disappointment, Part of the explanation is that this is a community that's lived through times like this before. We've been through a pandemic, the HIV pandemic in the 80s. Uh, most of us understand what that was. Since part of the story of the pride movement is overcoming adversity, Vancouver's West End will be just fine with the way things are this year, though there's still plenty of people having fun. I've, I'm amazed that there's so many people downtown this year that are out there doing their pride thing, in little groups, which is awesome. It's just nice to see that. In Vancouver, Paul Johnson, Global News. Active pass between Maine and Galliano Islands is the most scenic part of the 90-minute ferry ride between Tawasson and Swartz Bay. But 50 years ago today, it was the site of a tragedy. A Russian freighter rammed a B.C. ferry carrying more than 600 passengers, killing three of them. As Global B.C. marks 60 years on the air, tonight, Jordan Armstrong brings us this disaster at sea. August 2nd, 1970. Amateur film footage shows the collision. Watch as the sharp bow of the Russian freighter cleaves into the Queen of Victoria like an axe. 
rising slightly as it grinds through the ferry's port side. There was no warning or announcement that the collision was imminent. Former print journalist Ken Warren, now 82, was eating lunch on the ferry at the moment of impact. Most people in the cafeteria uh, fell over or had their food fall on top of them. Uh, it was uh, it was pretty well panicked. The accident happened on a clear day in Active Pass, the halfway point between Tawasson and Swartz Bay. Three people, including a 31-year-old woman and her seven-month-old son, were killed. This is my car right here. And right in front, but squished, is the Volkswagen that this lady and her baby were sitting inside. Warren says the half-hour post-crash was chaotic. We had no idea whether or not we were going to uh, sink. As I learned later, the reason that the staff was uh, really weak on uh, this was because they had hired so many university students or school students uh, in the summertime, and they hadn't properly trained them for an emergency because I guess they just didn't have emergencies. The two ships couldn't communicate by radio because they were on different frequencies. The Canadian pilot of the freighter was found chiefly responsible for the accident. After it was determined neither vessel would sink, they were pulled apart, and the Queen of Victoria was towed back to Tawasson, where Warren and other passengers spent hours pushing damaged vehicles off the car deck. Because of the gas uh, leaking and uh, whatnot, they didn't want... uh sparks started cars starting up. The Queen of Victoria was repaired and sailed for BC ferries until 1998, but she was involved in several more mishaps. In fact, some crew members thought she was cursed. The ship may be long gone, but the safety culture that came in the wake of this tragedy 50 years ago remains. Prior to uh, that accident, the ferry staff never came on and told you all about where the life jackets were. They started that just after that accident. Jordan Armstrong, Global News. As the city of Vancouver helps bars and restaurants shift into recovery, you can now tee off in Chinatown. This vacant lot beside the Kiefer Bar has been transformed into the Kiefer Yard, complete with a nine-hole mini golf course. Customers can bring their drinks outside and wait on bench seating before hitting the putting green. It fits with Dr. Henry's Good Times Guide, but what about her provincial health order that requires bar patrons to remain seated in all premises? Well, the bar says it got the green light to put up its game with physical distancing at play. For the mini pot, we're only having groups of two and uh, up to three to four possible groups at a time. And there's lots of distance in between. No drinks allowed with them while they're while they're playing. So they must leave their drinks in their seats and then they can go up and play and go sit down when they're done. I think uh, the creativity that's been um, allowed to be expressed by our local bars is um, perfect. Uh, this is a perfect use of space. Are you going to beat them? Definitely. It's a given. <laughs> The city of Vancouver says enforcement teams are educating the community to promote compliance with provincial orders, including service in bars and restaurants. A thrilling return to Earth for two U.S. astronauts on board the historic SpaceX mission. The two splashing down safely in the Gulf of Mexico after a months-long journey that will have an enormous impact on the future of space travel. 
splashdown. An historic and successful splashdown off the coast of Florida. Welcome back to planet Earth and thanks for flying SpaceX. The first water landing for an American crew spacecraft in 45 years. What an amazing day. Uh, today we really made history. The SpaceX Dragon weathering temperatures of up to 3,500 degrees Fahrenheit during the descent through the Earth's atmosphere. Parachutes deploying at 18,000 feet in altitude, slowing down the capsule from 350 to 15 miles per hour. The journey beginning two months ago with astronauts Bob Bankin and Doug Hurley. Today marked another significant milestone in the future of spaceflight. Three, two, one, zero. Ignition. In May, SpaceX became the first private company to send astronauts into orbit. It had been nearly a decade since NASA launched anyone from U.S. soil. Suiting up for the mission meant spending time on experiments and maintenance on the International Space Station, a toy stowaway belonging to Bob and Doug's sons. Both of our sons are pretty happy about that uh, with their pet dinosaur making it into orbit. Kept the crew company and social media buzzing. It's hard to put into words. Uh, just what it was like to be a part of this expedition, Expedition 63. It'll be uh, kind of a memory that will last a lifetime for me. Mission accomplished with more on the horizon. Kathy Park, NBC News. Tropical storm Isaias is getting stronger, though not yet back to hurricane strength. It is still packing high winds and heavy rain, but staying just far enough offshore to be a nuisance with rough seas and strong gusts, but not a major disaster. Now, 17 million people in the Carolinas and northward are getting ready for a potential direct hit. A wildfire in Southern California has forced more than 7,000 people from their homes. It began as two separate fires. Friday evening between Los Angeles and Palm Springs. The flames quickly joined together to form what is known now as the Apple Fire. The fire has consumed more than 6,000 hectares of dry brush and timber. Hundreds of firefighters are trying to contain the out-of-control flames. At least one home has been destroyed. The U.S. Weather Service says dangerously hot, dry and windy conditions are expected to continue. COVID-19 restrictions are tightening in Australia. Victoria, the second most populated state in Australia, has declared a state of disaster due to a spike in cases. Today, Victoria reported more than 671 infections, one of its highest. A curfew is now being enforced in Melbourne. Nearly 5 million people living in the area will not be allowed to leave their homes after 8 o'clock at night. Well, despite the pandemic, some international cruises are back on the water and already at least one ship is reporting an outbreak of COVID-19. Forty people, mostly staff from a Norwegian luxury cruise liner, have tested positive. Health officials expect that number to rise. The company is being criticized because it let almost 400 passengers disembark in northern Norway before learning about the test results. That has triggered fears the virus could spread further into the community. Transport Canada has banned cruise ships from docking until at least October 21st. Actor Wilfred Brimley has died. You know, when I was a kid and got a hold of a nickel, I thought I was rich. Brimley was the face of Quaker Oats and of diabetes education. He made his start as a stunt rider before working his way up to appear in movies including Cocoon, 
the natural and the firm. He was known best as a character actor and also made appearances in TV shows such as Seinfeld. Wilford Brimley passed away after battling a kidney ailment. He was 85. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. A mystery solved at one of the most mysterious sites in the world. What we now know about Stonehenge. We'll have that right after Yvonne's forecast. First, have a look at this. The Swiss Alps were lit up last night for Swiss National Day. The lights could be seen for as far as 20 kilometers away. Gatherings of larger than 1,000 people are banned there right now. So many watched the valley from the valley as the Alps turned different colors. How Beautiful. You're fairly familiar with the Alps, are yes, you? Yes, I am. And when it's safe to travel, I highly recommend going. Absolutely. <laughs> beautiful. All right. It was uh, pretty nice to cross uh, Metro Vancouver. Pleasant today. We have more cloud than sun right now. We are going to see a different weather picture as we get in towards our Monday. So we are going to be tracking a bit of precipitation for a few spots. And it is going to be a touch cooler. We still have a heat warning in effect. And we're tracking some thunderstorms more in just a moment. Today, we bumped up to 25 as the high. With the Humidex, it felt closer to 28 degrees. And temperatures soaring once again. Areas near trail today up to 35. And for a Soyuz, bumping up to 34 degrees. Now, here's the instability for this evening. A severe thunderstorm watch in effect. Areas near the peace across the central interior. We could see the potential with a few of these cells that are rolling through the region with heavy rain, gusty winds, and the possibility of hail. They'll start to ease off as we get in towards the evening, but we are still looking at the heat warning in effect for the central interior and the southern half of the province, the north and southern Thompson regions included within that, where temperatures overnight tonight will dip down only to 8 degrees. It'll be in the upper teens, but there is a break on the way for our Monday for most areas across the province. So a bit of a break tomorrow. Temperatures will moderate. For example, in the central interior, they'll be into the low 20s and much of the southern interior also seeing temperatures in the low 30s. That'll be for Monday, but on the upper level chart, Tuesday, Wednesday, we are going to see the temperatures peak warming up. And then on Thursday, we'll be tracking a big change with even the potential for some wet weather rolling in. Tomorrow, so a touch cool for most areas. Tuesday, Wednesday, hot once again. Thursday is when we'll start to see that change on the way with even a chance of showers. And the temperature trend, for example, in Kelowna, we'll see that heat bump up once again into the low 30s and then drop down to the low 20s as we get towards the end of the week for Thursday, Friday. Now, overnight and for the early morning hours, most areas across the south coast, cloud cover with even a slight chance for an isolated shower. It clears up as we get in towards the afternoon. It'll be dry once again, and then that sunshine kicks in for Tuesday onwards. Here's a quick glance, though. For the northern half of the province, most of the shower activity along the north coast will be for the morning, and then it dissipates towards the afternoon. The instability for the northeastern corners will be near Fort Nelson with the risk of thunderstorms. Much of the central interior, so there's a break in the heat. Temperatures will be into the low 20s with a chance of showers. And then towards the south of it, I've included the potential of the risk of thunderstorms for areas near the Columbia tomorrow and then the Thompson Okanagan and southeastern corners will see those temperatures into the low 30s. Whistler with a chance for some showers overnight and into the early morning hours, a clearing towards the afternoon and all areas across the south coast. So the weather picture and story that we're tracking is that cloud cover, a chance of showers. It'll be mainly cloudy for most areas tomorrow, heads up, but it'll be much drier as we get in towards the afternoon, rounding off the long weekend and then back into some sunshine Tuesday, Wednesday, late in the day we could see some showers and then temperatures will really start to moderate as we get in towards that Thursday, Friday. Colleen? We'll take it. Thanks, Yvonne. You bet.
The prehistoric monument known as Stonehenge has puzzled people for centuries. Well, now scientists say one of its mysteries has been solved. The origin of the towering boulders used to build it. A layer of mystery is peeled back at Stonehenge, exposing the unknown to the light. A year ago, a seemingly unremarkable rod of rock returned to the historical site. Back then, Susan Greeny saw something different. It's enabled uh, some analysis that wouldn't have otherwise been able to take place and finally pinpoint exactly where the sarsen stones came from. But that chunk of rock initially disappeared. In 1958, the British government commissioned a major restoration project to make Stonehenge safer and to help historians better understand the monument. Workers drilled through the largest of the Sarsen rocks, removing three stone cores. Robert Phillips took one home. The rest were discarded. You can see quite clearly the... Uh, it was a bit of a homecoming when Phillips' sons returned the family heirloom from the United States. Where they did the drilling. Also really exciting that it was a bit of luck, really. You know, the core being returned to us from America just happened to coincide with some geological work that was already taking place. Geologists trace the 20-ton giants to Westwoods, an area 15 miles north of Stonehenge. They're pretty much some of the largest sarsen stones in the whole of southern Britain. So it seems that the people who were building Stonehenge were selecting deliberately large stones. Why not build Stonehenge where they quarried the stones? Why move them so far? That's a really good question and not one that we can really answer at the moment, um, other than to say that really Stonehenge and the whole landscape around it, which is chock full of lots of other prehistoric monuments, must have been significant. I think there'll always be something of a, a mystery. An ancient mystery that keeps the magic of Stonehenge alive. Ian Lee, CBS News, London. It's still pretty cool to see in person. It is. It's really <laughs> It's, it's much smaller, I thought you were going to say, speaking of cool, but I guess not. <laughs> oh, I guess. Speaking of cool and uh, in person. Yes, there we go. Barry's here. <laughs> uh, what, a, what a day it's been, a weekend it's actually been with uh, the return of the NHL. Of course, the Canuck fans, the long wait's uh, finally over, about an hour away from puck drop in game one against Minnesota. So we'll hear from the Canucks one last time before they uh, get going and highlights of all the other games going on today as well and a uh, great finish in uh, golf today as well. So it's all coming up. Nice. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Barry. In the absence of physical distancing, we know face masks help stop the spread of COVID-19. They're not mandatory in B.C., but in other provinces and countries they are. And you can face hefty fines for not complying. <laughs> Hong Kong this week joined the list of places where you face punishment for leaving the house with your face uncovered. The territory is in the midst of what some are calling a third wave of COVID. And city authorities have announced that if you go out without a mask, you'll face a fine the equivalent of $650. Here in Europe, some of the toughest penalties are in Italy, which you'll remember was so hard hit early on in the pandemic. In the Campania region, there's now a $1,200 fine for people who go out without masks and for businesses who let them in. But that's pocket change compared to the situation in the Middle Eastern state of Qatar, where you face a staggering, wait for it, $55,000 fine and potentially up to three years in prison. Here in the UK, it's a relatively modest $65 if you're caught without a mask, going into a store or getting on public transport. So the big question is, do fines work? Fines can be a very effective policy tool if 
if in fact there is universal enforcement, and by universal, I don't mean that the mandate is at a federal level, for example, but rather that the monitoring and the punishment is universal. One comparison experts have made to us is to speeding tickets. Tickets aren't much of a deterrent if people know that they'll get them from speeding on some roads, but not on others. And the same is likely to be true of fines for not wearing a mask. They'll only work if they're applied evenly and applied everywhere. Raf Sanchez, NBC News, London. A sight for sore eyes. The sports bar live at Rogers Arena is welcoming back hockey fans tonight to watch their beloved Canucks physically distanced, of course. Some 200 fans making reservations and getting their seats early ahead of tonight's game. One lucky table getting to sit in the makeshift penalty box. The excitement is also being felt by staff and management who have been off work for months. Many of the preparations for tonight included finding ways to make the experience as close to sitting in the stands as possible. So tonight, Tuesday night, Thursday night, anyone that attends a game gets a rally towel. We're really looking to um, mimic the in-game experience that fans would receive, uh, and the rally towels will be a big, big part of that. Simulated excitement. Well, that's the way they have to do it, but uh, you know, they have lots of the virtual fans in the buildings of the NBA and the NHL these days, so that, uh, that helps the players a bit, I'm sure. All right, thanks, Colleen. The Canucks are indeed less than an hour away from face-off against the Wild. Of course, uh, goalie Jacob Markstrom will have to be incredibly good for Vancouver to win the series. But another key guy for the Canucks is Brock Besser. He'll play on the second line with Bo Horbat and Tanner Pearson. Besser did not score a goal in the Canucks' last 12 games back in February and March. That has to change in this series. And, of course, his teammates are confident that Brock will break out. There's no denying he can put the puck in the net. So, um, you know, when you get a guy like that, that um, is a proven goal scorer in your league, um, obviously you're not going to be, be mad about it by any means. Um, you know, hopefully he gets to the spots and uh, we can get him the puck. And um, obviously, look, the Winnipeg game the other night, he had some pretty, uh, pretty good scoring chances. So, um, you know, hopefully he's just uh, saving them for the games that matter. All right, action today in the West. Predators-Coyotes game one. UC Sorrow starting ahead of Pekka Rinne, who had made 89 straight playoff starts for the Predators. Not a good start for Sorrow's. Clayton Keller's power play goal made it 3-0. Coyotes in the first. In the second period, now 3-1. Canucks 2006 first-rounder Michael Grabner can still wheel. Steals the puck. That's a shorthanded breakaway goal. Buries it. He's 32 years old now, Grabner, but can still play. 4-1 Arizona. But Nashville made it interesting to goals in the first nine minutes of the third, including Philip Forsberg's second of the game. But that was the final. Coyotes get the victory, taking game one, 4-3 over Nashville. In the East, in Toronto, the hometown Maple Leafs taking on John Tortorella's Columbus Blue Jackets. First period, Austin Matthews with a great chance, but Hits the post off uh, Eunice Corposalo. Nothing, nothing after one. Second period, how about this save by Freddie Anderson stopping fellow Dane Oliver Bjorkstrand. That is a fantastic save to keep it scoreless. 
And that's where they stand as they are now in the second intermission. Blues and Avalanche playing the first of their round-robin seeding games. Not as much pressure as the play-in series. They've already clinched playoff spots. First period, David Perron with the bullet one-timer. Scores for the defending Stanley Cup champs. one nothing after one. Stayed that way to the third, but the Avs tied it. And then literally at the last moment, Nazem Kadri just beats the buzzer by one-tenth or maybe less than one-tenth of a second. They reviewed it forever, but it counts 2-1. Colorado wins. In the East, Flyers and Bruins also playing their round-robin seeding opener. Yarrow Halak starting for the Bruins. Tuka Rask not feeling well. Second period, 1-0 Flyers. Add to the lead. Nate Thompson doesn't score many, but that's a laser to the top corner. 2-0 Philadelphia. Boston got one back, but just eight seconds later, Phil Myers walks in and rips it past Halak as the Flyers down the Bruins 4-1. NBA action from the bubble in Orlando, Celtics and Trailblazers. Boston currently third in the East, four games back of the second-place Raptors. Wild finish in this one. Blazers roared back from a 20-point deficit. Gary Trent Jr. with the three, but the Celtics got the lead back, and then Jalen Brown seals it with Boston's 18th three-pointer of the game. Celts win 128-124. Raptors back in action tomorrow, 10.30 a.m. our time, versus Kelly Olynyk and the Miami Heat. Canadian Elite Basketball Tournament from St. Catharines. Fraser Valley Bandits had dropped their last two but got back on the winning track today against the Niagara River Lions. Abbotsford's own Merrick Klassen hits the three-pointer to make it 37-31 Bandits. The magic number to win today, 70. Junior Cadugan led the way with 16. He got the basket there. Bandits take it 70-59, clinch at least a quarterfinal berth and improve their record to 3-2. and two. Baseball tonight, Latiners James Paxton getting just his second start of the season. The Yanks only loss, actually. They're 6-1. and one. Top of the first, the Big Maple looking strong. Strikes out Raphael Devers. But later in the inning, with a man on, Xander Bogertz. Very good hitter. Goes deep. Taking that one to right center. It's a two-run homer. 2-0 Boston as Paxton went three innings this time, gave up five runs, but has not pitched a whole lot so far this year. He got some support, though. Aaron Judge crushes a three-run shot. It's 7-6 now Red Sox in the seventh. Final round of the FedEx St. Jude WGC event from Memphis. Justin Thomas wearing his lucky pink pants. And did they come in handy? Caught a huge break on his tee shot on the 15th. Check the graphic. Everyone plays on the right side. Somehow he landed on the wrong side of the creek but got away with it. Found dry land and converted thanks to knocking his approach to six feet. Made the birdie putt and tied for the lead with Brooks Kepka. Then at 16, after another lucky break when he hit a tree branch on his approach, knocked it close again and made another birdie. Got to have some breaks if you're going to win on the PGA Tour. Took the lead at 13 under. Now Kepka bogeyed to fall two off the lead, but then this little surprise at 17 from 40 feet. Certainly is paid. Hello, Birdie there. Gets back to within one, but uh, Kepka took all the drama out of an exciting finish when he splashes his tee shot on the 18th, would end up making a double bogey and tied for second. Justin Thomas wins his 13th PGA Tour event, third youngest to ever reach that number, behind only Tiger Woods and Jack Nicklaus, and he also returns to the number one ranking in the world. Nick Taylor finished tied for 35th. Adam Hadwin was tied 72nd. Next week, the PGA Championship. 
from San Francisco, the first major of the season. Silverstone racetrack in England for the British Grand Prix. Lewis Hamilton on the pole keeps the lead after the start over uh, Valtteri Bottas who ended up getting a flat late and finished 11th. Hamilton never surrendered the lead. Montreal's Lance Stroll started 6th but finished 9th, still picked up a couple of points. The other Canadian, Nicholas Latifi, was 15th. Hamilton was cruising with a huge lead until he punctures his left front tire on the last lap, drove it home on the rims. He was able to hold off Max Verstappen, who would have caught him had there been another lap. Hamilton's tire is destroyed, but uh, he'll take it, gets his 7th British Grand Prix win. And NASCAR from New Hampshire, the Foxwoods Resort Casino 301. Kyle Busch's bad luck continues, has not won it all in 2020. Flat tire and then hammers the wall hard, and his day is uh, over early. Continued bad luck for all the uh, Kyle Busch fans. Brad Keselowski continued his tremendous season, already had two wins today. He got his third, led for 184 of the 301 laps, takes the checkered flag in New Hampshire. NASCAR has a doubleheader next week and in Michigan. Okay, tipping is now banned at a Toronto restaurant. It's called Richmond Station. Now, as a result, the menu prices are higher, as you might expect, and the staff is paid more. And the owners, well, they hope it's a trend that catches on. From the outside, you might not notice anything too different here at the Richmond Station restaurant in downtown Toronto, but there is a big change. The restaurant has eliminated tipping, and the owner says that's a positive move for everyone. Richmond Station has moved to a hospitality-included model, which means the price on the menu already includes the tip. The business says it's raised prices by an average of 18%, all of that going to staff pay. That means moving more staff to salary positions with more predictable pay and benefits. In a statement, owner Ryan Donovan said eliminating tips and moving to hospitality included is also the right thing to do. We want our staff to have the same entitlements to the social safety net and their professional peers in other industries, and the fallout from the pandemic has made that abundantly clear. Whether or not tipping is the right way to go is a contentious issue for many. I've had my fair share of, like, bad tips, etc. And, you know, like, so long as people get a living wage... I'm all for that. Going into the workplace on an unbusy night in the middle of the week when the restaurant is expected to be dead, uh, you'd have more motivation going into work as a server knowing that you're at least making that set higher wage. As you know, I'm from Ireland and I kind of grew up not tipping at all and I kind of got used to that. North America is widely considered a tipping culture and industry group Restaurants Canada says while more restaurants are doing away with tips, it's a big hurdle to clear. It's a cultural change. Some people have done it for all their lives and uh, they think they maybe think they get better service if uh, they have a tipping model. For those who really want to tip, Richmond Station says no thanks. They've even removed the option from payment terminals. The management says the pandemic really exposed the gap between workers receiving traditional pay and benefits and those who depend on tips. They say this was a perfect time to change that. Albert Delatala, Global News. Hmm. I'm wondering if you up the prices and pay them better and 